Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Ergona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Matt Bufton and Sabine L. Chidiak. As you may all know, Matt co-founded the Institute for Liberal Studies in 2006 and has been serving as the executive director since 2010. He's also this podcast's executive producer, and we've done some previous episodes with him, which you can check out. Sabine joined the Institute for Liberal Studies in 2017, and she is the educational programs manager. And of course, she's the producer of The Curious Task, and we've also done a podcast episode together as well. This is our 2021, I almost forgot what year it was, uh, wrap-up episode. So we're just going to chill out and speak about things that we thought were interesting that happened during the year and some of our favorite episodes and stuff going on at the ILS and things like that. So I guess welcome on to another one of these wrap-up episodes, guys. Great to see you guys, and I sympathize with your year problem, Alex. Ever since the year 2020, every year for the rest of my life will be a futuristic sci-fi year that I never actually thought I would live through. Yes, I agree with that. I actually, I've always been telling people that I feel like even though we're entering 2022, it feels like that's 2021, and we're a year behind now because of all this nonsense, so it's like this weird sci-fi dystopian thing in my head right now. Time has lost all meaning. Yes. Sabine seems to agree, but adding no comment. What is time? <laughs> That's all I have to say. I completely right. sympathize and with the fact that you don't. <laughs> and hopefully, the audience at this point can hear some of the drink noises so they understand how lax we are. So, folks, <laughs> as I crunch down on my ice, and that will make it to the cut, we could talk about a couple things that happened this year. I mean, the obvious standout is the pandemic is, in our minds, almost over, even though governments are still talking about lockdowns and other things like that. Um, but uh, let's put it this way. I think the good news, in my opinion, you guys, some of you agree, is things are looking a lot damn better than they were when we did this last year. I think I feel a lot better both mentally and forward-looking than things last year. Do you, you guys agree? Definitely worse. Definitely worse. worse. Yeah, absolutely. Worse. Last year, there was hope uh, to me that uh, that we were going to get into the vaccines and that things to last uh, about this time last year. Mm. Uh, my wife and I booked a, uh, an Airbnb in Montreal for May and thought, okay, by the time we get to like the spring, uh, you know, the vaccines will have rolled out, cases will have uh, dropped and, and we'll be through this. Um, and, uh, and I've given up on the looking forward to saying like, you know, there will be a point where this is over. So presumably at some point it will happen. But I'm not going to say that I think we're almost through this because I think we we might have another one, two, three, four, five years of this. I, I would make no predictions. Wow. So I guess what you're saying is the reason why you feel worse now is because you were an optimist a year's time ago. Like you're basically a little more optimistic than than most people, I would say, actually, to be honest. Generally, yes, that uh, that uh, that may have been a casualty of the pandemic now, um, but also because we've been in it for that much longer. Right. So last year we had been in the sort of, uh, you know, pandemic lockdown quarantine, you know, don't see anyone mode uh, for eight months when we at, you know, at this point right. last year. So now it's been 20 months. And uh, that me, that's just all you know, 20 is a lot worse than eight when it comes to that. That's true. But I do. I mean, I'm not sure how much. You guys have been leveraging in terms of socialization, especially with with a kid and all that. So you want, you are trying to be careful on top of that. But I definitely feel like there's a, there's less of a lockdown over my. I mean, there might be a new one. That's a whole different issue. We'll talk about that in a sec. But generally speaking, I think the last handful of months has at least been a lot more lax than we experienced in 2020. Though that we can agree was was very severe as far as the lockdown situation, right? 
Yeah, I mean, for the the thing that comes into play with the kids is that not only is there the concern of COVID uh, itself, but there is the problem of being sick and losing childcare. So right. for in in our situation, and you know, friends uh, with uh, with young children, um, and uh, you know, I don't think any of them, uh, of the you know, people that I know, I don't think any of their kids, I don't think the parents have caught COVID either. But it's a problem. Someone in the co- in the house gets a cold, gets a cough, and all of a sudden the kids can't go to school or daycare right. or whatever it is. And, uh, and that's that's the big problem. Now, we've been pretty lucky. So it was the last week or two weeks ago was the first time that we kept our daughter home uh, from daycare. She had a runny nose. And, uh, and they asked us if we could uh, keep her home for the day and, and make sure that uh, that it wasn't anything more serious, uh, which we were able to uh, to do. And, and that's after well over a year in uh, in daycare. So fairly lucky there. But we've got friends with you know kids who we would like our kids to be friends, and especially the ones in bigger daycares. It just you know kids are constantly sick when they're in uh, when they're in daycare, uh, and that's as far as I know being a function of like childhood for uh, for a long time. But now it means that you lose the childcare when the kids are sick, and it's right. a big problem. Right? No, that is, that is a huge problem. So Sabine, I mean like. Matt was an optimist, now maybe neutral or a little pe- more pessimistic. I I was the other way. I, I flipped. I, I actually wasn't feeling that optimistic at the end of 2020. I was like, I don't know how long, much longer this is going to last. But the way things are now, I feel like at least the last handful of months were a lot better than 2020. So maybe I'm just trying to silver do a silver lining type thing. How how have you been feeling? It's, I mean, I know we've been. Ta- I know it's been. It hasn't been a year since we've talked, but it's, it's been a year <laughs> since we uh, since we've done that episode. How would you compare your, your, uh, your overall thoughts since then? I see Alex. I mean, I, I see Alex virtually every week. That's true. He's <laughs> uh, recording episodes. So uh, I talk to Alex quite a bit and I have been saying, uh, you know, it's, I'm definitely grateful that I'm vaccinated. Very happy that I'm vaccinated. It makes me feel better about uh, going out and seeing people and all of that. Um, so, you know, we're, we're really lucky to be in a position where we got both of our, uh, the Canadians got both of their uh, vaccines um, fairly quickly, one after the other. That was good. Um, but you know, the time just keeps trudging on. Like, I'm very, I just don't know. The uncertainty, um, is, is still pretty bad. So I'm glad that I'm able to see more people. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. Yeah, no, for sure. I, I see what you guys are both saying too. I just remember being, un, I just remember the worst to me was like being unvaccinated and then hearing that was coming. That was like a weird stretch of time to me. So although Matt, you said you're optimistic about like, oh, we're going to get the vaccines is going to be over with. That's fair enough. But being unvaccinated and then keep keeping having to think about that. That was the thing that was like really weird to me last year. It was like, okay, it's something in the distance that we're going to do. And then something's going to happen. Then we're going to get over it. But at the same time, you're still unvaccinated. And everyone's screaming at you to stay away from everybody. So that, that, that at least I think is an improvement. Perhaps. I mean, I've been disappointed and Speed knows this well from our conversations in the office over the way in which many of our public health authorities and you know, then by extension, I think is a public attitude that, well, maybe vaccines don't work. I mean, I think vaccines are wonderful. I think the vaccines that we have for COVID work exceedingly well. I'm not that I'm a scientist, but you know, the studies I read in the newspapers and see, it seems everything works, works really well. Almost everyone I know, I believe is vaccinated, you know, lucky in that front, you know, it seems to have stopped people catching it and getting very sick. And, and so I think all that's great. And uh, and yet I see a lot of sort of, uh, you know, public health restrictions that uh, that talk about 
you know, the spread of COVID as if the vaccines are ineffective. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a friend out in BC. He was uh, a spectator at a, at a marathon in, uh, I believe it was in Victoria. And uh, the, uh, the attendees, you had to be double vaccinated to get into the sort of area where people were watching. It's a marathon, so it's outdoors. They're, they're not doing this uh, indoors. <laughs> right. And, and you had to wear the masks to get into the area at all. Hmm. And I understand there's a time and a place for masks, but when you're outdoors, you know, there's a couple of things that we know are really effective. We know the vaccines are really effective. We know that being outdoors because the ventilation is like necessarily good when you're outdoors. Those are two huge things that are going to, you know, combat any potential spread. Putting on the the masks, and I think, is just sort of sending this message that uh, well, we're, it's it's almost like they're saying we're not sure if the vaccines work. Yeah, you know, we're going to have to pretend that they don't. You still see a lot of social distancing stuff in uh, in places, and I was hoping a lot of that would disappear mm-hmm. after we got the vaccines out. They've they've really stuck around. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I mean, I do feel like the goalpost has moved a couple times, at least in the public narrative. I'm not speaking for like the scientific community by any means right here. So nobody get angry listening to that. I more mean like what you hear sort of put through from the public health officials and then sort of the the line that a lot of the media are saying, hey, you know, that's what I mean. So I feel like that goalpost has moved a bit because I remember in 2020, the discussion was like, we got to get vaccinated that and and they knew ahead of time they were preparing everybody. It doesn't mean it's going to eliminate it, but it's going to decrease the severity. If even you get COVID at the very least, it's going to like by a factor of whatever it was like really high decrease your chances of death severe illness whatever so that was the idea and they were even preparing people to say it's not going to get rid of covid but it's going to make it a hell of a lot better than we can return to normal now i agree with you one of the things that is a little troubling to me as well is that that goalpost has moved ever so slightly where we're back to talking about uh you know cases themselves as if they're in and of themselves are are like the worst thing in the world not saying they're a good thing but i'd rather have myself be a case of COVID after being double or triple vaccinated versus being unvaccinated. I think that's a little bit of a goalpost movement. That's a little worrisome when it comes to public health uh, lockdowns and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think we're seeing what I would consider pretty healthy numbers in terms oh, yeah. of uh, you know a lot of public uptake on the number of people who are vaccinated. You know, I'm in Ottawa. We're all in Ottawa. Uh, we have, you know, really high proportions, like 80% of the total uh, population and it's going to keep climbing because they've introduced some new groups. Uh, you know, the younger kids that are now able to get vaccinated. So that number is going to keep going up. Um, and of course, we got a lot of friends who are economists. And one thing they'll talk about is diminishing returns, right? So, you know, that first 10% of the population that got vaccinated was pretty good. As you build up, you know, you're getting these uh, increasing uh, uh, numbers of people who are vaccinated, but the, as you get towards the end of the, uh, you know, fewer and fewer people are unvaccinated, the value of, uh, of the safeguards of vaccinating that extra, you know, chunk of the population is, is going to go down. And so it feels to me like we're putting a lot of effort in concern uh, about the fact that some people that are unvaccinated. Um, and of course, people are going to make their choices about that. Uh, I don't think we can or should you know, force anyone to, uh, to get vaccinated. And I think we should spend more time celebrating the fact that we got a vaccine that works really well. Uh, we got it very quickly by the standards of vaccines. And overwhelmingly, the people around us said, that sounds great. Give us one of those, please. Give us two of those. And, uh, and I think we should be celebrating that more than worrying about the minority people 
who don't want to take it. Right. And I think there's something to be said about that to tie it obviously into some good old classical liberalism that, you know, there, I'm not saying I agree with this or not. I'm just saying one could say there's certainly a case to be made when there is no availability where you could be free to choose to get a vaccine when the vaccines are literally not available, one could make the argument that there's some public health mandate to do such and such in terms of social distancing mandating such and such. I'm not saying I believe in that. I'm saying one can make that argument. But when not only is the initial rollout done, but also the vaccines we're being told are basically piling up and in some cases scandal expiring in vaults and you know they're there if you want them. And of course they're there if you don't want them either when we're kind of at that point where people are free to choose whether they get a vaccine and sort of assess their own risk tolerance and that kind of thing i think that's where we have to start letting truly the market decide on who's going to be doing what and what risk they're willing to tolerate where they would like to go and so on and so forth because i think we've all had a lot of uh, education sometimes voluntary and sometimes forced about the situation and now the vaccines are are widely available and last i heard they work pretty damn well, unless I'm, we're being lied to. So I, I agree with you. That That's a little troubling there. And on, on that happy, sometimes optimistic, sometimes depressing note, I think we could maybe we'll move on to something else. Um, I know something that's been on your mind, Sabine, has been, and, and it's always on your mind, but especially as we've gone through a lot of changes and the world's been a little crazy, is obviously the, the topic of immigration. This is something we've talked about on the podcast, you and I actually before, and obviously um, this is something that's always important, but I think it's especially been highlighted during the pandemic. My, my general thought that I always throw out there is that um, if people want to see what a world looks like where freedom of movement is even more restricted, whether it's just to do a vacation or try to move to a different country, um, well, the pandemic ran a nice simulation for everybody. And I think if you're anywhere close to being even one speck sympathetic to freedom of movement, you should realize, okay, that's actually not a good thing. I don't think we've witnessed a very fun time with that and the effects it's drawn. You let me know if you agree, though. Sorry, Alex, are you talking about immigration and the pandemic? Or are you talking about immigration in general? Well, obviously immigration in general. But what I mean to say is the pandemic has provided a very good experiment for us to see what it's like when freedom of movement is severely restricted, especially like let alone, you know, do a vacation is a one thing, but let alone try to move to a different country, for example. So we've sort of been able to run this experiment and see how great it would be, quote unquote, in a world of less freedom of movement, because there are some that are proponents of that severely restricting immigration. But as we can see here, um, there's been a lot of negative effects when we've decreased freedom of movement. Yeah, well, definitely people who have very um, strong passports got to see what it feels like to be people who have uh, passports that don't get them many places very easily. Uh, so, Right, it's a really good point. Yeah, so, uh, so the fact that we have a Canadian passport and we still couldn't go anywhere for a long time. Uh, that's like the reality every day for a lot of people around the world. They might have a passport, they might be able to travel, but it's very difficult for them to go anywhere outside of like maybe a pre-approved list of like 10 or 15 countries or something like that. So, um, you know, the restrictions are real for those people and we've experienced that. And um, unfortunately, uh, the, you know, we, I don't, I have to say we haven't really learned much from that. Um, we're still doing the same things we've been always doing, which is uh, restricting immigration uh, in ways that harm people. Uh, and by we, I mean the countries where people are trying to get to. <laughs> uh, so a good example is um, Afghanistan. So back in August of this year, the Taliban uh, took over uh, Kabul and that ended up uh, in the, the takeover of, of Afghanistan. And they are now installed as the government there. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, that, that is an unfortunate reality. Uh, it is a very, it's, going to, it's a very violent and uh, dangerous time to live in Afghanistan. 
Uh, and a lot of people want to leave. Uh, what did we do? Not much, to be honest. <laughs> the best way that you can help people in a disastrous time like this is to, uh, you know, mobilize your immigration programs to get people out as easily and as fast as possible. Um, given the situation on the ground, of course, there's a lot of things you have to take into consideration. Uh, it's not always easy to get people out, uh, but there are times uh, in between a con one conflict and the other that you can make it happen. There are diplomatic means of making this happen. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, in my opinion, Canada didn't do everything that it could, and it still isn't. So basically what Canada did for those individuals was say, if you helped the Canadian government in the past, uh, we have a special program for you to get you out of there because obviously the Taliban does not look very favorably on people who help the Canadian government. Um, and also, if you are a human rights activist, a member of certain communities that are oppressed or particularly oppressed in Afghanistan, uh, there's a list of them online that you can you can take a look at. Um, then we have a special program for you too. Of course, the number was very small. Um, and honestly, it's really hard to find out what that number is. Uh, it, what's harder than finding out what that number is, is uh, finding out how to actually get people out through that program. It is not clear. It is not clear what the process is. Um, you have to jump through a lot of hoops to even get that information. And once you get that information, nothing is for sure. Um, you have to go through a whole process. It takes a very long time. Um, and at the end of the day, people who uh, are outside of Afghanistan are the ones that are uh, like they have to get out of Afghanistan to be able to qualify for this program most of the time. And you have to be approved by the UNHCR. So it's the same old story of red tape and restrictions that makes it very difficult for people to get out in emergency situations. This is not just regular immigration where you've got the luxury of sitting around for six to 12 months waiting for a response, which I think shouldn't be the case, but you're able to do it because you're just sitting in a country where you can wait. In a situation where you're in immediate danger for your livelihood and the livelihood of those that you love and you need to get out immediately, the fact that we are asking so much of these individuals that are in crisis just to get some sort of nod of approval from the Canadian government uh, is incredibly difficult for me to accept. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I know that this is just a trend. Like It's just very difficult to get people out, and I understand that. Uh, but it's also not that hard to let people that want to help help. For example, the program that I talk about a lot, the private uh, sponsorship program that we have in Canada that works very, very well. That's a very successful program. I talked about this in a previous episode. You can check it out. I don't remember what the number of the episode is, but I'm sure Alex can uh, put it in later. <laughs> uh, so I, I speak, I speak mm -hmm. about that at length and you can check that out. But this program is the natural way like the it should be the natural way to get people out like obviously this is the best way to help because if the government feels overwhelmed by the work then there are private actors in our in your community right now willing to do it they have the money they have the time they have the resources and they are being stopped because of all these restrictions and red tape that they have to abide by one thing that i found very disturbing actually through the whole narrative and this happened in uh uh, to be fair, this was often like the news media just taking quotes from politicians and so on because they're reporting on what they're saying. But other times, even editorially speaking, they would often agree with this. And, you know, it seems like sort of a great human rights thing to say. But to me, I actually didn't like it at all, is that uh, the, the, 
you know, and you mentioned it when you were saying there too, I don't mean you endorsed it, you're just saying it was a fact, it was a program, is that a lot of the narrative around who deserved to get out of Afghanistan was very disturbing to me. Like, for example, like, you know, um, we, you know, Joe Biden would say something like, I saw a couple of speeches, I'm not directly quoting, you know, we're going to make sure to get our troops out of there. Obviously, we want to make sure Americans are safe, blah, blah, blah. And of course, anybody who helped us along the way, you know, this is a priority too. Well, you know, from a humanitarian crisis perspective, policy is one thing, but from a humanitarian crisis perspective, I think that when it comes down to the good old classical liberal point about freedom of movement and equal human dignity, I think although that might seem to some people be like a great thing, sure, we should help people that helped us. That can be a message on the one hand that you can make an argument for that might be able to stand on its own merit. But on the other hand, I think it really distracted from the fact that like, you know, a single mom with a child or something just like struggling in Afghanistan with the Taliban coming into the town. What disturbed me is like you think of that scenario, if they didn't have time or, you know, uh, the will to participate in informing a Canadian soldier or something, are they not just as important? So I got very excitable about this point, too, because I was very disappointed that some of the narrative, not from you, Sabine, obviously, but from a lot of other people, was basically like, this isn't an overall humanitarian issue. It's about getting Canadians, Americans, and those that helped us, uh, and those that helped us, of course, out of the country. Well, that was a little disturbing to me. So I think not only in these types of situations do we need to be more welcoming and speak out more about this stuff for everyone to get out, we should also very much make sure to call out a conversation if you do come from a liberal perspective to basically say, we're talking about everyone here, not just the politically convenient or the people that we can actually say helped us or whatever the case may be. Not sure if you agree, but that point really like sort of disturbed me when I read between the lines on it because it wasn't just mentioned once or twice. It was often repeated and it was part of the narrative. It was clearly part of Mr. Trudeau and Mr. Biden's talking points that the people put in front of them to repeat. And that was actually very um, disturbing to me, to be quite honest. Yeah, certainly I would prefer that uh, an expansion on uh, who is uh, let in. I mean, it's not that we stopped general immigration of Afghanis to uh, Canada or anything like that. So they could still apply to come to Canada uh, through other programs. These were special programs that were put together uh, really quickly, emergency programs, and they have to be defined in some way. So this is how they chose to define them. But it's been since August. So it's time to expand those programs um, or just make new programs if they have to, if, if they want to just find, like, you know, government likes to create new programs, not eliminate old ones. So, like, they want to create a third or fourth or fifth program, that's fine with me if the end result is that more people are coming to Canada from Afghanistan that need to get here. Um, and uh, if you're talking, so that's the humanitarian side of this conversation. If we want to talk about the economic side, this is a very important point for a lot of people. Economic immigration is very important to, to the success of Canada. Uh, Canadian the Canadian economy uh, on the economic side it's also very important that that we uh, you know make sure that we're uh, our programs are reflecting the economic situation that we're in um, the former minister of immigration Marco Mendocino he was uh, the minister until the recent election um, he even came out and said like we understand that we in order to recover from this uh, I don't have the direct quote I wish I had it in front of me but uh, some like just to paraphrase, we like we're aware that the way to that to economic recovery in Canada is through immigration, and like we have to focus on that. Um, so I'm I'm just like hoping that they do, <laughs> because yes, it really drives home. This pandemic has really driven home how important immigration is uh, to the betterment of the economy. Uh, from a humanitarian standpoint, of course, it's very important that we respond quickly and efficiently to disasters and emergencies around the world. And we continue to do that, not just when the the uh, 
the issue is popular in the media and everybody's upset about it. And then six months later, we forget that it ever happened. We have to continue to follow up on these things. Uh, and, and because it takes time to get people out um, and a lot of resources and that takes time. So you continue to do it for a while. But also on the economic side, it's extremely important that uh, we continue to find ways to uh, open that up a little bit more um, or a lot more so that our economy can recover from what's been happening due to the pandemic um, and not just Canada, but and many other countries as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'll make a partial defense of the sort of uh, move. And this was you know, all the governments that were involved in Afghanistan uh, were bringing out the people who had helped them. Um, and that's partly because the resources being used are then military resources. So there's probably a case for them using their resources to help people who assisted them. Um, probably more relevant is the fact you've got to make decisions, right? So you had probably hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people trying to get out of Afghanistan uh, during the sort of transition back to Taliban rule. And you've got to figure out who is going to get out if you're going to just let a few people out. And so relying on some of that local knowledge that your, like I say, employees, the the Canadian military personnel who have been on the ground, they will at least know who is who. And, you know, know, this guy is, is, is good. This person uh, is, uh, is trying to get out, but he's a bad guy or, or whatever it is. So I actually don't have a huge problem with that, but I have a problem with limiting the other people, right? So it's not that I think that the Canadian government necessarily has an obligation to you know, send a plane to Afghanistan, get everyone onto the plane, bring them to Canada. That might be a nice humanitarian thing to do, but I don't, I don't think we have an obligation to do that. What I think we do have an obligation to do is to be like pretty welcoming, to people who can get themselves either through the help or whatever the channels are to get here and not then start turning those people around or even worse, which is what I think we do, basically broadcasting. If you come here, we will not let you in uh, because we are only accepting, you know, the 10,000, 15,000 people. They've got to have filled out all of these forms. A friend of a friend was was trying to get out of uh, Afghanistan um, at that time and was looking at all of the, 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 process and and what's going on. And from my understanding, he was in a pretty dangerous personal situation. And at the same time, the Canadian government is asking him to fill out reams of paperwork to figure out if he qualifies to uh, to get out. So I would much rather say like, look, we can't necessarily get you out, but if you can make your way to Canada, we would be happy to have you here. Right. Yeah. And to clarify my point, obviously, you know, the fact is that when the military and public policies involved, decisions have to be made. So I'd rather have that kind of program of, hey, maybe the military can help prioritize people that helped us rather than nothing. So if that's the two options, I'd rather have that. But my point was actually more on the side you were making, Matt, which is I was talking more about the public attitude of who, quote unquote, deserves to be here. That's more of what I was talking about. Of course, there has to be decisions that need to be made tactically, whether I agree with them or not. That's just going to happen. But but is is the part you were talking about, which is basically the idea of who are the kind of people that would deserve to go, you know, get out of Afghanistan and come here? I was just a little disturbed by the fact that it was often focused on obviously the the nationals of both America and Canada, but also people that helped us. And then it's like, there wasn't really an actual, of course, because it's not politically popular uh, in some cases, there wasn't sort of a discussion of, hey, wouldn't it be nice if all these people could get over here, regardless of how they did? Here's a safe haven. Unfortunately, we're not at that point where that's like mainstream direct political rhetoric, I don't think. Yeah, and I, I mean, I Kamala think Harris under- said, oh, so sorry, I was just gonna say Kamala Harris, I think was telling some migrant caravans, don't come here. Don't. So there you go. That's the kind of message I think that was also sent to people that didn't help the United States military. So that's the part I was more talking about. 
Absolutely. And I'll just say, I think we often underestimate the degree to which this is a sort of self-selecting population, right? So some Canadians um, might have you know, concerns about immigration. Well, you know, how do we know that, uh, that these people want to come in Canada and you know, live in, uh, in a, uh, a liberal country and support you know, liberal values? And of course, I'm using liberal in the proper historical sense, not the, uh, the modern political sense. But uh, I would say that, hey, can you get yourself from Afghanistan to Canada? Are you motivated enough? You have the thought of living in what was probably quite an illiberal theocracy worries you. And you want to come to a country that has liberal democracy and freedom and the rule of law. And the kinds of people who are going to do that are going to, I think, self-select the kind of people that by and large, we'd probably be pretty lucky to have here. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think most of the time, um, you know, most people really truly do want to go somewhere to have a better life in a self-interested way that's very healthy and they just want to be left alone. And I think that's something to celebrate uh, without doing sort of these these weird nationalist tests about whether they, they love the country for such and such abstract values or or whether or not they have such and such political view. Obviously, you know, there's a, the strongest argument one can make is like a, a direct security risk, but that's such a minority percent of, of what we actually yeah. be talking about. But everything that uh, you and Matt are saying and that I'm saying uh, doesn't get in the way of still doing like security checks, medical checks, all those things. Like that, you. I always advocate that we still have to do that. It's fine, do it, but not at the expense of, of like. I mean, not 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 at the expense. You, you can still do that and let in more people uh, at the same time, and the, the one doesn't conflict with the other. Like they work. Ah, uh, but you, but but government has to do those checks. So here's an obscure fact about you know, sort of Canadian law: is if you publish a book in Canada, you are legally required to deposit two copies of it uh, with the National Archives. We've published a few small books over the last few years uh, at the Institute for Liberal Studies. I discovered this law. It's not one that I'm worried about being punished for breaking, but I'm also happy to have the books which we've published, which I think contain valuable information, put into the sort of public record of the historical documents of uh, books published in Canada. So I sent these along to the Library of Archives in Canada uh, by mail. I mean, I could have walked them over myself in half an hour from our offices. But I put them in the mail. It's probably a one or two day trip by mail. It took them about six months to send me an email to acknowledge that they had received and filed these books in the way that they needed to do so. So in principle, the idea of security checks and background checks seem fine, but I think we have to keep in mind, how long are they going to keep the do the, take to do that? Is that going to be the reason that they can't let people in is because they've got nowhere to put people while they spend months doing these checks. Yeah, definitely. That's uh, that's a concern. Uh, but it wouldn't be the first time that Canada has had to deal with a large scale resettlement issue. So they've done it in the past. They've let people in. Um, a lot of the time, uh, the restrictions before they even get here are, are the bigger problem for uh, refugees and, and immigrants uh, of all sorts, <laughs> not just refugees. Um, that's usually what's holding them back. It's uh, backlogs of it's it's uh, paper issues, trying to get documents, uh, like this long list of documents that they need from you. Uh, there's so many things before you even get to the stage of getting your like security and medical checks uh, that you have to go through before you even get to that point. So mm-hmm. 
um, you know, just red tape in general, if we just like, you know, just make it a little bit less, even just a little bit less, <laughs> it'll make the process a lot easier for mm-hmm. people who are in, especially for people who are in immediate danger. With that, we'll just take a quick break and then we'll get into some other stuff after the break. So everyone who's in the Curious Task, I'm Alex Aragona, and I'm speaking today with Sabine Elchidiak and Matt Bufton. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Matt Bufton and Sabine Elchidiak. It's our year-end wrap-up episode. So we talked a lot in the first half, guys. That was quite interesting. Uh, We talked about the pandemic, uh, immigration, Afghanistan. Why don't we take this next bit here to talk about the podcast and the Institute for Liberal Studies, of course. Um, So let's start. Maybe let's do some stats. That's kind of fun. So I think the last sort of public not announcement the sort of thing we posted on social media i might be totally wrong was achieving like twenty thousand downloads just not, you know a little while ago i think we haven't said anything since then but i think we're we're much beyond that now aren't we so matt's the numbers guy for the curious ass so i'll leave it to him to run us through it because uh he he, he keeps very close track of, of what's going on so yeah we have uh we've actually just passed forty four thousand downloads for the lifetime uh of the podcast which starts in august of, oh, nice. uh, of 2019 uh so obviously that's great we're coming up on the big fifty thousand which will be a uh, a nice mark and uh, and over the past uh year so uh you know starting january first twenty twenty one uh we're a little over twenty thousand. So pretty good chance we'll uh, we'll uh, pass the twenty one thousand downloads for the year by the time we get to uh, to New Year's Eve, and for a little podcast from a little nonprofit in Ottawa, we think that's pretty good. I think that's pretty good. Yeah, for sure. Ed, do we want to maybe rhyme off some of the top this, top that? I, th- I think that's always fun. Like, is there a quick way to spool up on the dashboard the top downloaded episode for this year or something like that, or of all time? Yeah, let me take a look and see what we can pull up here. So for a long time, our friend Nigel Ashford, who uh, recorded episode one, uh, What is Classical Liberalism? I think that was, was actually pulling down yeah, the top spot. It was our first release, but also literally the first thing we recorded, I believe. Thank you, Nigel. That it, was great. Exactly. Yeah, recorded, I believe, in a uh, dorm room at Carleton University during uh, Freedom Week there in, in 2019, where Nigel was on the faculty and, and also doing the uh, the podcast interview. And, uh, and so, first of all, it's a, it's a great episode. Uh, you know, it's pretty foundational for people who are discovering the ILS or the, uh, or the podcast. It's also got a benefit of being number one. And, uh, and I'm told, and it makes total sense, that the first episode of a podcast is often the most played one because uh, people who discover the podcast often will scroll back to the first episode, download one, two, three episodes, whatever it is. But if they always hit that one episode, then that's going to give that a boost. So Nigel's got some great numbers, but 
For episode 100, we had economist Tyler Cowan from George Mason University. On A lot of our listeners will uh, be aware of Tyler. Uh, he's a really interesting guy. Talks about a lot of interesting things, um, especially, you know, it's all related to economics, uh, at least a lot of it's related to economics. Uh, he's written some really interesting stuff on food economics. He has a book, uh, An Economist Gets Lunch, which I really recommend to anyone who's interested uh, in food and, and food culture. Um, and, uh, and so we sort of played on that uh, and used the episode title, Is Scarborough the Dining Capital of the World, uh, which I uh, really enjoyed. And, uh, and that episode uh, did really well, did especially well when Tyler posted the uh, link to the episode on his uh, popular blog, Marginal Revolution. So right now, as I'm looking at the numbers, uh, Tyler Cowan is the, the most downloaded episode of all time. Uh, several of our episodes with Jacob Levy are sitting in the top number. I also see Mike Munger, Ross Roberts, uh, Jason Brennan, Eric Mack, and our friend Eric Schleiser, uh, also in the top 10 of the all-time downloads. Great. That's awesome. I feel like I want a newscast like, and that was the report from Matt. <laughs> <laughs> now over to Sabine for weather. Yeah, go Sabine with the weather, like quickly look outside. It's cold. <laughs> it's freaking cold. It's in Canada. What temperatures are right now? All our American friends are laughing. Minus double digits. That's all yeah, I know. All our friends are laughing at us. Isn't James Harrigan, am I right that he's in Arizona? We're talking to him next week. Will he be laughing at us? Oh, yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, that's great. No, I think uh, I think we should be uh, happy with uh, with those kind of stats. I think I do still have memories of when me and Matt just exchanged a couple of Facebook messages about uh, just maybe be fun to try a podcast and kind of sort of release a couple episodes and maybe see how it goes. So I think we're definitely beyond that sort of stage and beyond uh, Sabine with the audio equipment on a flipped upside down recycle bin with Nigel. So I think we've, we've definitely uh, come a long way in terms of both our setup and, and, uh, and everything. Of course, the guests have always been a plus since the beginning, but in terms of us producing things is what I mean that that's come a long way. So, so that's great. And thank, did, thank you. Did to we everyone. save the recycle bin? Can that be auctioned off? I, as I wish. Like a PBS pledge drive, curious tax memorabilia. <laughs> we might be able to remember the same dorm we were in and go get the recycle bin. Cause I think it was Carlton's. So I do have a picture of it. Like I do have a picture of my setup on the recycling bin, so like maybe go. I'll post it to our patrons. <laughs> there you go. And to all those listening that have either just joined us, I apologize. It's your first episode, if you have, but um, but if you just joined us and uh, or uh, if you've been listening for a while, yeah, yeah, quickly check out another episode. This is not what yeah. it is. Um, the whole time, as much as this is fun, this is not just hours of this. But uh, if you've just joined us or if you've been listening uh, for a while, thank you very much. We 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 genuinely. Love you folks for listening, and uh, and uh, we hope that we've given you a lot of food for thought with all the episodes. Um, speaking of the Institute for Liberal Studies in general, um, beyond the curious task right now, uh, it's been a quite a long darn time with all these virtual events, eh, guys? When when do you think we're going get, to be getting back to some sort of, I don't want to say normal, but but different than that? Or is, does that look like it's on the agenda for the next little while? Uh, as I mentioned earlier, so I've sort of, uh, you know, stopped making those predictions because I spent a long time saying, well, when September rolls around, when January rolls around, you know, whenever it is rolls around, we'll be back to normal. I will say we're looking at, uh, at August uh, 2022 for Freedom Week in Montreal, in person, if we can. Um, so we've uh, we started making some inquiries with uh, some of the faculty uh, who might uh, potentially appear there. We'd love to do it. 
Um, it would be really great to uh, to get back to people, both students and faculty, and you know other fa- other ILS staff, and have everybody in a uh, in a classroom together and uh, recreate that feeling of an in person seminar. But I don't know what the odds are that we make it there. Right. And for those unfamiliar, what is real quick high level pitch? What is Freedom Week? If someone's listening, they don't know what the heck we're talking about. Yeah, Freedom Week is a five day intellectual adventure. So we get a group of usually about forty students and uh, five or six professors, uh, and uh, spend a week uh, just about in a classroom, a university, um, and do lectures every day, have some breaks, some social time, and, and that's the thing that we miss uh, by doing things through Zoom. Right? We can get speakers and they can give interesting talks. We can run the Q and A. But what we do at something like Freedom Week is have socials and meals and breaks time, and people would spend that time together, partly just having fun and doing whatever they want to do, but partly also talking about the ideas that they'd heard on a previous lecture or something like that. That's the kind of thing that we really you know, struggle to, to recreate in the, the Zoom, uh, Zoom atmosphere. So Freedom Week you know, up until 2020 was, uh, was one of the keystone events for the ILS for a number of years. And, uh, and we're hoping that, uh, that it'll be back. Uh, we'll be looking to post some details over the winter semester, so probably about February. Uh, you know, some of that stuff will tentatively uh, appear, um, but it's all going to depend, you know, firstly on local regulations uh, about rules and travel um and then also in terms of you know what well, the comfort level of people is for doing things right i guess one one positive about you know if you can pull a silver lining out of this is i guess some of the events that might have been attended in person the fact that they're virtual i guess there's a wider audience i guess we have we seen students from different corners at, at this time like I've, would you say that's a fair statement at least some silver lining out of the whole situation oh yeah absolutely so you get people from around the world uh, across the country you get people who wouldn't have normally been able to uh to attend um and i uh, also get speakers who wouldn't uh you know be otherwise able to attend so some of the people that we've had do zoom talks for us you know, for them, that's an hour, maybe an hour and a half out of their uh, out of their day. We ask them to come up and you know, say, give a talk in Toronto. A lot of these people are in the states or in other provinces. Yeah, it's getting on a plane, it's traveling, it's a night in a hotel, it's the talk, it's maybe another night in a hotel. It's a serious time commitment, and so some people are able to make that work. We love them for it. Some people can't make that work for whatever reason, uh, but a lot of those people can make an hour to uh, to show up in front of a laptop on uh, on Zoom. So that's really nice. And that's actually something that we may well continue in some format, uh, even when things do uh, eventually return to normal. But what we'd really like to be doing is offering these sort of Zoom talks and seminars as a supplement to the other stuff that we do rather than a substitute for it. Right. One thing I'm missing from the podcast perspective, I know you you and you and I, Sabine, were talking about this at one point, too, is that we actually got to record a good chunk of episodes in person with some of our uh, guests. Like, you know, they were doing some lectures and, and things maybe perhaps in the, uh, you know, you know, an hour before or something like that. And then we managed to catch up with them after to do an hour recording for the episode. So I'm hoping at some point we can get back to something like that. I know that was pretty interesting, Sabine, you and I, when we got to like sit down and actually produce together and actually be there with the guests. It's, it's a little bit of a different feeling for sure. Yeah, I really Absolutely. hope we can get back to that at some point. Um, and one other thing that I want to mention that is new at the ILS set uh, in 2021, it's our alumni network. So it's a, also a great opportunity for people to connect at a time when they're not able to connect as much as before. Right. Uh, so if you've ever, if anybody who's listening has ever done a program um, with the ILS, then you are considered an alumnus of the ILS. So 
check us out. We have a website up. We'd love for you to join that network. Uh, you can either go to our main website, liberalstudies.ca, and uh, click on alumni. Um, or you can just go straight to uh, liberalstudies.nationbuilder.com. Um, and I'll take you straight there. And once you sign up, we will send you messages and emails once in a while to let you know about exclusive events for uh, alumni and other opportunities um, that will come up. And I'm really excited about that. And we're all really excited about that. And uh, hopefully we see that network grow, especially at a time when, um, you know, networking is really important still. Just because you can't be there physically doesn't mean you shouldn't be networking with others and and catching up with your old Freedom Week friends and all of that. So you should still, we have that opportunity for you to do that now. And, la- and last question before we move to fam- famous, uh, not famous, sorry. Last question before we move to favorite episodes. But uh, Matt, is Liberty Summer Seminar coming back? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe, but I don't know. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll one one step at a time. I guess but if you just want to go camping, Alex, that's do it. That's true. Yeah, and for those listening who might not know, Matt, would you say it's fair to summarize Liberty Summer Seminars? Literally, just we, we all go into a forest somewhere and listen to great great uh, lectures and talks and hang out and eat food. I think that's pretty much a good uh, summary. Absolutely. I mean, Liberty Summer Seminars. Some of the people listening, I'm sure, will know is actually the event that sort of led to the creation of the ILS. So, uh, friend uh, ILS co-founder Peter Jaworski, his parents had a beautiful property uh, just outside of Oshawa, outside of Toronto, and they had a nice big house. They ran a bed and breakfast. They had some room, and uh, and so when we were younger and and more open to sleeping on the ground, we'd get a bunch of our friends together. We'd uh, sleep in tents. We'd invite some great speakers. They'd usually sleep in the house. Peter's mom would uh, would take care of them very well. And uh, and it was a great time. And it actually started off in 2001. Uh, Peter, I think, had about you know 15 or 16 people come out uh, for a weekend that, uh, that first year. Uh, Janet and I had, uh, started uh, attending in 2005. 2006, we created the Institute for Liberal Studies, which then became the host of the Liberty Summer Seminar. And at its peak, we had about 105, 110 people uh, showing up for a weekend at uh, at Peter's place. And his mom was still expected to cook meals for all of them. Uh, Although at this point, she had roped some of the neighbors into helping out with the catering. (laughs) Beautiful. (laughs) You know what? Actually, Sabine, quickly, let's write down uh, Institute for Liberal Studies uh, origin stories with Peter and Matt episode upcoming. So that's a teaser yes. right there. That, that, I don't know why we haven't thought of that before, but that'll be great. I love it. <laughs> let's, let's do, let's do favorite episodes to wrap things up. So Sabine, let's start with you. Um, and I think, you know what I should just say as a disclaimer up front, I think we have enough episodes now that is, as you know, this year we're talking about favorite episodes of the year in general, but, but in general, I think we have enough episodes where it's unfair to call something a, a pure and simple favorite. At least that's my perspective. So, I mean, I'm just going to put a disclaimer in front of this segment and basically say just uh, handful of episodes we'll do one each that we, we would like to highlight for one reason or another we of course love all of our guests and and we actually work really hard to make sure every episode's a favorite so sabine what if you had to highlight one for whatever reason whether it be specific about the interview or just even in a personal thing what, what would you like to highlight this year so from uh, the episodes that we were, we put out in 2021 i think um i want to just highlight the episode we did recently it was actually not very long ago uh with ben Klutze. Uh, he's from Mercatus. Mm. He did an episode on how do we bridge divides. I think it's such an important episode for the moment that we're in right now. Um, it's optimistic and still practical. Um, and he talks about a lot of things that are very important to me as well. So, you know, I love talking about pluralism and civil exchange and all of these great topics. And uh, he really gets into the ideas of like the importance of pluralism, of civil exchange seeing each other as dignified equals, respecting other people and recognizing the dignity of others and their opinions and values and choices. 
And these are also important, especially at a time when we're becoming a lot of people are becoming a lot more polarized from one another due to political reasons and, and otherwise. Um, you know, just like that's the kind of society that I want to live in personally, one that's inclusive, where we tolerate things we don't agree with. Uh, and we're living sort of diversely as long as you're not hurting other people. Um, and the fact that he, like, you know, when, when he's talking about solutions at the end, at the end of the episode, he, you ask him uh, a great question, which is uh, like, how do we actually do, make this happen? And all of us, when he's talking about solutions, he talks about uh, what he talks about is, is uh, th- those solutions is why I love this episode so, so much. Uh, and also why I love uh, what I do for a living. Um, so like, how can I not love that episode? <laughs> Right. <laughs> because at the ILS, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to uh, bridge divides. Um, so we, we bring students together that may have never met otherwise, who have not been exposed to other people's uh, political opinions or ideas in many cases. Yeah. And um, respectful exchange and very interesting conversations. And they're just exposed to these ideas that not necessarily they become immediately like you know uh agreeable to these ideas or anything like that but they're exposed to them they can think about them critically ask questions i think that's a really important first step to bridging divides and ben talks about that a lot in the episode i think it's really important yeah absolutely and i think this that's very key what you said at the end there's to be at least from my perspective is like especially with ils events and stuff but the point isn't that they become agreeable to the ideas obviously we want to spread the idea we we think it's a good idea that's why it's on stage but we want them to at least listen and provide an environment where they actually hear the idea consider it and then of course at the end of the day because we think it's a great idea well hopefully people consider it and actually adopt it for themselves potentially but i think the i think not only is that the kind of thing that the ILS does, but also what Ben was talking about. I think that's so key. I really love that episode as well, because we're able to talk about this idea of pluralism, getting together, exchange. And the, and one thing I like that Ben mentioned too, and that me and him did a nice little exchange on too, was the value of the exchange in and of itself. Not the idea that you're supposed to be convincing someone, not the idea of the, the, the debate, you know, the sort of debate me culture, not just the fact that, you know, you're trying to convince someone of something, but just the idea of practicing conversation and actually being in in a situation where you get to exchange ideas or confront someone nicely on an opinion you might disagree with or exchange something about something you do agree with, that in and of itself is a good practice and something we should be celebrating and doing more of in a liberal society, not just to not just the end goal of convincing somebody or the end goal of disagreeing or the end goal of spreading an idea, just the act of exchange itself, I think is valuable. So I think that was a great, great, uh, great point. Yeah, and he, he he also talks about how we see each other as enemies now, people who don't agree with us. They're ruining our lives, ruining our country. They're actually doing damage. That's how um, a lot of people see each other. And that's very damaging in itself um, for a pluralism, for civil exchange and all of these things that we would, one would prefer to have uh, as popular concepts. So um, he talks a little bit about that, and that's a really important topic that we've spoken about before uh, with people like Kevin Valley and others. Absolutely, yeah. And the state and the powers that be depend on that, folks, us seeing each other's enemies, but we won't get too much of that right now. Matt, <laughs> um, <laughs> an episode you'd like to highlight. Yeah, that's another. Sorry. That's a whole other hour. Right? <laughs> Matt, an episode you'd like to highlight or make a couple of comments on. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go with a lighter note and uh, and uh, risk of just uh, liking the thing that's uh, the most popular thing. I really love the Tyler Cowan interview. Um, people who know me will know that I'm into food. I'm into the economic way of thinking. And so that episode is the merger of like how you can apply economic thinking 
uh, to uh, to eating better. And uh, and there's I think all sorts of uh, sort of great uh, great dining tips on there. Uh, Tyler explains why Scarborough is highly underrated as a food destination, and Paris is highly overrated. And uh, and I think it's a thing. Sabine's giving me the thumbs up because she went to university in Scarborough, <laughs> and uh, I think it's a it's a great uh, great episode. It's a it's a great one to recommend to some friends. I mean, a lot of people listening are probably a little bit wonkish and nerdy in terms of ideas. Uh, but if you know someone who's not quite as nerdish as wonky as you are, but you think might be able to get in the podcast using that episode as an entry point, I think is a great way uh, because it relates the food to the you know, reasoning and thinking and, and throws in some you know, good dose of classical liberalism talking about uh, sort of integration and, and immigration and entrepreneurship and things like that. I think it's a delightful episode. Yeah, no, absolutely. I love that one too. And uh, t- Tyler's very fun to talk to. He's a man that likes to be concise and quick. So we got a lot in the episode. Like I actually got to ask him a lot of questions. So I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, yeah. We have some guests. I'm not going to name any names, but we have some guests, Alex, who you can ask them a question and you probably got time to uh, put down your headset, go down to the kitchen, open the fridge, <laughs> rummage around, see what's in. Make yourself a sandwich, come back and sit back down, and you'd be there right in time to answer or ask the next uh, the next question. Of course, you wouldn't do that because you want to hear what our guests are saying. Of course. But in terms of the timing, some people speak of quite a bit. Tyler is like quick and, and sort of snappy. And again, I think that's something that lends itself well to someone who is you know, maybe a little unsure if this is the kind of podcast they want to listen to. I think it works really well. Absolutely. And for me, I'll just say I almost feel like I have to default say, um, <laughs> you know, for, for for personal reasons that override any other consideration. I very much enjoyed our episode with Gary Chartier. So um, he, we were basically talking about left libertarianism, market anarchism, and I'll just say, as someone who ultimately, at the end of the day, if I have to define myself as something, would probably lean more towards the situation where I say I'm a pretty radical liberal market anarchist kind of thing. So. Um, so that was very interesting. I did my best not to like make it like sort of a, a bro conversation. That was that is never my intent on any of the podcasts. I hope everyone hears that. But I really wanted Gary to sort of explore those ideas. So I threw different things at him about um, you know the state of the modern business corporation, uh, what he means when he differentiates uh, capitalism from markets, what left libertarianism means, what he thinks uh, you know people that are serious about the liberal tradition, and also that identify as market anarchists and so on and so forth can say about things like class relations and, and that sort of thing, um, what they bring to the table. So I, I, that would be my recommendation among many other things uh, to definitely check that one out. And that one was near and dear to my heart as well. So I thought that was a, a really great one to get on the record. And you and I, Matt, have talked very much often about uh, getting more of the, some of the, the 101s, if you will, episodes. What is this? What is that? So I think that although it was, this one was not uh, called that, I think it served as one of those. So I thought that was another nice bonus there too. Absolutely. That's a, that is a great episode. I actually uh, was just listening to that uh, quite recently. It just came out. And, uh, and, uh, and I think there's a lot of, a lot of interesting stuff in there. And you know, some listeners may have heard the term left libertarian, but sort of being puzzled by that, because to some people, libertarians are an ideology of the right. To some people, um, you know, it's a bit of an oxymoron to say left libertarians. But I think you and Gary do a really good and, and interesting discussion about what that could mean, what that is. And uh, yeah, I think it's uh, it's a real good uh, listen. All right. Well, folks, I'm, I'm not sure before we do, do any kind of like 
actual end to this. And does anyone have anything else to add other other than holiday cheer? Does anyone have anything else to add for to, to really close out the year here? I think. Uh, I mean, I'm obviously completely biased, probably along with you guys, in thinking I think it was a good year for the Curious Task and the Institute for Liberal Studies in general. It was a good year for the Curious Task. Absolutely, I agree. And uh, and maybe some of our listeners are, are people like me uh, who are a little bit extroverted, and uh, and uh, yeah, we're missing some of those opportunities to get out and interact with people and sort of you know, maybe burn off some of that energy and resorted to some uh, like outside walks just to try and get some fresh air and, and clear their heads. And when I do that, I often listen to podcasts. So if you're the type of person who does that too, hey. Cue up the curious task, find some episodes you may have missed along the way and have a listen. Um, and just before we sort of do the wrap up, I want to thank you guys, Alex and Sabine, for all the time and the work that you guys put into this podcast. Uh, as Alex was saying, it doesn't seem that long ago that Alex uh, came to us and said, hey, I'm thinking of doing a podcast. Uh, would the ILS be interested in uh, in being involved? And I think it's worked out really well. You know, we obviously through episode uh, 100, uh, now uh, thereabouts 120 episodes. I'm not sure exactly what one this will be, but it'll be in that range. Uh, and and coming up on the big 50,000 listens. So uh, so I think it's, uh, it's really well done. And I'm going to click on the Zoom React that lets me do a little applause emoji. Oh, oh, that's right. going to be the raise hand. I'm going to do that one too, even though no one listening can see. Just know people that there are hands this is clapping. purely for us. And, and emojis. Has popped off a <laughs> confetti horn. Wow, amazing. <laughs> what a party. Um, and you know, Matt, last time when we, we brought it to the formal wrap-up, you, you tossed it to me, which I thought was a fun surprise, and I had a nice little message for our listeners there. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't want to do that again this time, because I think I, I would say, honestly, the exact same thing, which I'll just quickly summarize thanks everyone for listening it, it really means a lot and from the bottom of my heart i really hope uh, you guys enjoy this i hope um you've enjoyed the food for thought we've provided and actually think of it as food for thought because we're putting a lot of effort into this but uh but but it is really for everyone listening we think this stuff should be out there so thank you very much but sabine i'd like to toss it to you this year and say if anything to bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on our our year-end wrap-up episode if you'd like anyone to take anything away from this conversation, whether it's one or two or just a handful of takeaways, what would it ultimately be as far as our year-end wrap a year-end wrap-up episode is concerned? Wow, <laughs> I get the last word. That's amazing. Okay, so well, I think that um, it's been a really good year. We've had some amazing uh, guests on, and we've really grown um, the listenership. I'm really proud of that, um, and we just love our patrons so much that help us like to actually make this all happen um and we're always uh really grateful to them and thank you so much for spending so much time with us um alex and i and matt we all love this like this is something that we do because we love it uh, this podcast we love the topics we love the guests uh it's, it's really like a labor of love and um we really appreciate that you all love it alongside of us so thanks for that um but before we wrap up i want to ask everyone what they're drinking <laughs> We've all been having a drink this whole uh, oh. episode, and uh, Alex, you didn't really ask us what we were That's drinking. True. I just kind of want to know. <laughs> all right, well, we'll we'll, uh, we'll start with the least interesting, which will be me. Um, oh, okay. To, to fit to, to fit into stereotypes, I'm just drinking straight up Shinzano, which for those of you who don't know, um, always disappears from the LCBO uh, racks around Italian Week in Ottawa, which is just unfortunately terribly stereotypical. But it's basically just rose vermouth with ice. So that's it. So. If you're ever at an Italian wedding, look for it. 
I was looking for a good cocktail themed drink for the um, for the uh, sort of to fit the mood and the events. Uh, there was uh, the first episode, uh, first uh, recorded interview, which is not the first aired interview, the first recorded interview I did with Alex. I was drinking a liberal. We were talking about liberalism and wanted to wanted to capture that. Um, but as I mentioned, to Alex, I'm feeling a little pessimistic about the state of the world. I feel like we have we are well into what Jacob Levy would call the post-apocalyptic hellscape. <laughs> and so in the spirit of the times, I've just been drinking scotch from a bottle. Cheers. Wow, there you go. And he's literally <laughs> doing that on screen right now. We should have a video component to this podcast at some point. Sabine, the last word of the last word segment. What are you drinking? <laughs> I am drinking a delicious porter beer from Collective Arts called Stranger Than Fiction. And I think you would all enjoy it very much if you picked it up at your uh, you know, local LCBO or wherever you purchase fine alcohols. <laughs> Hopefully. Not from the state liquor monopoly, I hope. No. <laughs> yes, you can go to Collective Arts. I highly recommend going to the actual brewery and getting it from them. That's always a great idea, too. Or having it delivered. Go for it. Right. It's delicious. I highly recommend it. Or, or just go to your, your private liquor dealer, like on the street, and we'll leave our listeners to think, does Ontario have some weird dystopian liquor dealer like a weed dealer? We're not going to answer the question because we do have state-controlled liquor, so you have to figure out for yourself. I think we'll, I think that's a good place to leave it. What do you guys think? Yes. That sounds great. All right. Thanks, everyone, Thanks for joining all. us. Um, we very much appreciate it. Uh, this is Alex Aragona uh, signing off officially for the year as the host of The Curious Task. Uh, and this is Sabine Elchidiak, one of the producers of The Curious Task, saying uh, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays. And Matt Buffton from the ILS and The Curious Task. Happy Holidays. Happy New Year, everyone. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Seguin. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. The Curious Task.